Okay, so tonight we're picking up from two weeks ago. Um, we looked at um, the book of Ezra, and as we mentioned last week, and I'll refer to it again some again tonight, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra happen, they occur about the same time. Um, I have um, a couple of things from Ezra in tonight's uh, PowerPoint on some of the slides from last week just or two weeks ago just to remind you of the um, connection there with those two. And even though Ezra is located first in our Bible, uh, Nehemiah, actually chapter one that we're going to look at, and we'll see a slide in a moment. I think we looked at it two weeks ago too, but we'll see where actually Nehemiah um, chapters one through six, I think about verse 19, actually you get that far before Ezra actually came on the scene. So remember as we study this tonight and as we looked at two weeks ago, uh, God called Nehemiah, as we'll look in chapter 1 in just a moment, he called him to come back to the city of Jerusalem after so many of them had been in captivity um, in Judah, which remember the southern kingdom is Judah and it's made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom is, all the, is the other ten tribes. And so inside Judah, of course, is Jerusalem, uh, the capital city. And so God called Nehemiah, he gave him a burden, as we'll see tonight, to go back to the city and to examine the city in the way that it had been in waste and in ruins since they had been taken off to Babylon into captivity. Now, as we'll see tonight, from the time that they went into Babylonian captivity, Persia later becomes the world power. And another book in, in, that we'll get to in, uh, in future weeks is the book of Daniel. Uh, and Daniel is, is one of those who goes into captivity. So Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra probably live right around within maybe a few years or decades or something of each other. I'll have to, maybe by the time we get to, to Daniel, I can nail that down a little better for you. But so all that occurs about the same time. And then as we looked at also a couple of weeks ago, there are a couple of the, uh, what we call minor prophets. Their, their ministry was about the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. We'll get back to that a little bit tonight. So as we go tonight and look through, oh, it would help, wouldn't it, if I put this in here. Um, it would, as we go through the book of Nehemiah tonight um, and look at, get that to go in there, I hope that works. Uh, and look at the uh, book, there are 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah. And as we said, each week, the key, um, the key, or key words or, key, or a key phrase, and the key word for um, Nehemiah is the word rebuild. The key word for Ezra was return. And so um, they return in Nehemiah, but the key that, the, that we're really looking at and focusing on is the rebuilding because Nehemiah goes back to do that before Ezra comes back and returns with many of the others. So rebuild is our key word, and there are 13 chapters. Again, Judah was in captivity in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And um, then later, they went into captivity to Persia, a little bit to the west, which is modern-day Iran. So when Nehemiah uh, begins, uh, when chapter 1 begins, he finds himself in the palace of the king at that time. And the king, the world power at that time, is Persia. So we'll uh, look at that. So they become the world power roughly about 539 B.C., and so this, that's found in Daniel's, Daniel chapters 5 and 6. You see Persia and the king of Persia mentioned there in those two chapters. And so um, roughly, so I had to go back in and change the dates on this when I, when, I, when I did a little more research. Roughly Ezra that we talked about was about 460 B.C. And so from what we can tell, Nehemiah was somewhere from 15 say, to 20 years 
before that, whenever he, when God begins to lay on his heart to go back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah actually happens a little bit earlier in, in, the, uh, in the time frame. So very simple way to break down the book of Nehemiah is in two parts. In chapters 1, to, it's almost halfway, but halfway would be the middle of chapter 6, but it's almost like two, you know, two parts, almost completely e- uh, equal parts. Chapters 1 through 7, they focus on rebuilding the walls there in Jerusalem and the gates. You could add that too if you want to, rebuilding the walls and the gates. And then in chapters 8 to 13, there is revival and reform. So chapter 8 through 13, by that time, Ezra had come back on the scene in chapter 6 and 7. But chapter 8, he's mentioned a a good bit in that chapter, uh, which is my favorite chapter in the book of Nehemiah. And one of my favorite chapters in all the Old Testament is chapter 8, and we'll get to that tonight. So as we look at this, I want us to hit the highlights tonight like we do usually, but I don't want to spend quite as much time on the highlights. I want us to spend a little more time on the practical matters. Nehemiah is a very practical book. It's one of my favorite favorite books in all of Scripture. I mean, it's hard to say that with 66 of them, but um, it's one of my favorite books in all of Scripture because there's so much good stuff in the book of Nehemiah. And you see a man that God calls to do a special work, and it's just wonderful. So in, when we looked at Ezra and then also 2 Chronicles the week before that, 2 Chronicles ended with what Ezra uh, talked about in uh, his, the first chapter, that one verse, chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, is actually from the book of Ezra. Uh, I should have wrote that in there and left it because this is kind of a slide from last week. So where it says chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, that's actually Ezra. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 and 11, Jeremiah prophesied that they would return back to the land, and they did that very thing, and I think we read that last week. So King Cyrus had proclaimed their return in chapter 1. So if you're making notes or if you're kind of comparing, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 6 and verse number 9, all those events take place before Ezra comes on the scene or before Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 begins. So um, they they, they were getting ready to come back to the land somewhat, and uh, Nehemiah, though, when he goes back, as we'll see in a moment, there's no one around very much. There's hardly, there isn't really anybody there when he goes back. Uh, so let's look at this. No, chapter 1, we see Nehemiah's burden, the burden God gives him on and lays on his heart. Then we see the request he makes to the king. And then in chapter 3, we'll see him rebuilding the walls. So let's hit a few highlights here and look at a few things, and then we'll see um, we'll go on and move through the, the highlights and then we'll get into some of the practical matters because it is a very, very practical book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, let's go down to verse number 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, and it came to pass in the month Chislu. So this month is about the month November to December, somewhere in there. So our calendar months, if you take... The uh, about midway in each of our calendar months, it goes to the midway of the next month, and that's how um, the Jewish calendar works. So the month Chislu is the month about December, roughly November fifteenth through about December fifteenth, roughly. Um, it, it goes our half month, so it's that time frame of the year. It's late fall, heading towards winter time. So it says in the month Chislu in the twentieth year. Um, we'll come back to this in chapter two in just a moment. 
Uh, I was in Shushan, the palace. So that's in Persia, verse 2. Then Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So there were a few people there, but not very many. And at some point, Hanani had come, he had come to Persia where Nehemiah was, and he asked him about what was going on there. When you last saw the place, what was it like? And he's about to tell him that it was in shambles, basically, verse 3. And he said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. And the gates thereof are burned with fire. So wall and gates, you'll see those words all through the, these first, about the first seven chapters especially. You'll see them mentioned over and over. All right, And they're burned with fire. The whole city had been ransacked. Everything was burned. Everything was destroyed. And then the, um, those that lived in Judah in, 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 uh, around Jerusalem, they were all taken into captivity. Verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. God laid a burden on Nehemiah's heart, and he was about to, um, Nehemiah was about to do something very great for the Lord. Sometimes in our life, there may be someone that we care about very much, someone that we've been praying about a long time. The Lord lays on our heart to pray for them. And then it may be a point in our life or somebody else comes into their life that God uses some of us or someone to uh, talk to that person. Maybe they need the gospel. Maybe there's something going on in their life and uh, they're, they, they've gotten away from the Lord. Uh, something maybe you know happened to them personally, and God may lay on your heart to do that. That's exactly what He did with Nehemiah. He gave him, even though the word burden's not there, there was a burden laid on his heart, and it wasn't a burden of something that he felt felt that um, he just had to do um, because just simply having to do it. It was a burden. It was something God laid on his heart because he knew that this was something God wanted to work in. He knew that it was bigger than just the feeling that he had of a burden. Uh, as important as that was, it was bigger than that. So we won't spend time going through the rest of the chapter, but you see him praying throughout this chapter. He prays to God and tells God, Lord, we're, our, our, whole, our, our land's in reproach and the people have all been in captivity. And, and Lord, I, I really um, um, I want to go back. I want to rebuild. And, and we've, we've sinned against you. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. We've sinned against you. We disobeyed you. And so we remember in our history what we've studied so far from the kings that, you know, king after king would disobey God, disobey, disobey. God would send prophets. He'd raise up in Judah good kings, but they still continue to disobey. And it ends very interesting at the end of chapter 1 there. The very last verse, as he prays this, he says, Lord, hear the prayer of your servant. Look what he says at the end of the verse. For I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah had a very important job. He was, he was one that was um, very trusted by the king. He was a cupbearer. He would bear uh, the cup and, the, and probably oftentimes the food. He'd be kind of like a butler, what you would think of maybe a butler. And he would bring the food to the king. He was a very trusted man because uh, it had to get by him first. If there was something poisonous and uh, the king got a hold of it and he got sick or even worse, even died, it would have been on his head. So he was a very trusted man. And look what he says, though. He says, I was the king's cupbearer. Why did he say that? He had a great job in the palace, but he was about to set it aside because he knew he had a bigger job. 
He was serving the king under which they, you know, which they were, were under bondage and, uh, for disobeying God. But now he's going to leave that and go serve the king. He's going to serve the real uh, true and living king, the true and living God. We get to chapter 2. And it came to verse 1, it came to pass in the month Nisan, or Nisan, however you want to say it, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that uh, wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. He was a cupbearer, remember? Now I had not before time been, uh, been before time sad in his presence. So when you look at that month, it's about March to April. So about three months had passed. So he spent time praying, he spent time weeping, he spent time fasting before the Lord, this was not some just a sudden decision he made. Let's go do this. He prayed about it over time. And in doing so, um, quite likely, God just continued to confirm in his heart what he wanted him to do. And it said that he was sad in the king's presence. Now, that was usually not a good thing, um, to be sad in the presence of the king. Uh, most kings, you know, they didn't like that. They didn't want somebody being sad and, um, and you know, getting, <laughs> getting upset about something. Maybe, maybe they weren't happy in their job and the king might, you know, dispose of them or something. But verse 2, it says, The king said unto me, Why is it thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And then I was very sore afraid because he knew it was a very serious thing before the king. And so God opened the door for him to tell the king, King, my people are in affliction and reproach. And the city where we come from, everything is destroyed. The walls, the gates, the whole city, is just, the temple where we worship, it's all gone. It's all destroyed. So God used um, a, a king, a Gentile king, that as far as we know didn't worship the true and living God. God used him to tell Nehemiah, okay, you go, and not only that, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get what you need and go and rebuild the city. Wow, what a great thing that Nehemiah prayed about that. This wasn't something he just did overnight. And God worked and worked through the king. What a great thing. So that was his request before the king. Now I'm going to move a little faster now. We need to. But anyway, that kind of gets us into the, 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 the narrative sort of what's going on with Nehemiah. So in chapter 3, you've, if you read through there, you'll see where they rebuild the walls. And um, he assigns people on each of the walls and each of the gates that need to be rebuilt. We'll come back to that at the end when we talk about the practical matters. Chapters 4 through 6, we see where happens anytime you do something for the Lord, we see where there's some opposition. There are those that oppose them. They're called enemies, uh, and they come from, from without. Sometimes he had problems with those within. And we'll get to that too. But enemies that come from without that wanted to stop that. They mocked them. Uh, we'll come back to that in a, in a little bit at the end. But they mocked them in chapter 4. And uh, what, do you, you know, what do you think you're going to do? You think you'll finish this in a day? What do you think you're doing trying to rebuild these walls and these gates and rebuild the city? And so they faced opposition. And Nehemiah responded to that. And very well he responded to that. You get into chapter 7. And Nehemiah begins to register the people. So remember, um, before they left, everything, all the records were gone. Everything was gone of the genealogy of who was who and who came from what family. And so uh, he, goes, he, he goes and kind of registers the people and finds out who's living here now, who moved back from wherever, Persia or wherever, who moved back, and everyone that's there, and he begins to register all the people. Then we'll come back to this too, but in chapter 8, there is great revival. Ezra's name is mentioned here, and God does something great among his people in Jerusalem there. We'll come back to that. Then in chapters 9 and 10, we see the results of that revival, the way that God blessed them and the things God did 
uh, for Jerusalem and for his people there of Judah because they came back and rebuilt the walls. And then in chapters 11 to 13, now they're back. Now they have their city again, and now they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls and the gates, or they're uh, about to rebuild the temple in places here. Ezra rebuilds that, but he, uh, they rebuild everything in the city, and so now they can again dwell within the city. Did everybody come back? Not everybody came back. But God always has his remnant, and there were, there were many that did come back into the city to again um, be, you know, be where they belonged, in their home, uh, in their in their city in in their in Judah, and also to re, you know to start their families back and to rebuild. So there's reform and there's renewal that happens as a result of that as they're back in the in the town or in the city and the the city's growing again. So roughly about 480, Nehemiah receives his burden, and then several years later, Ezra's ministry begins. So as we talked about last week or two weeks ago with the book of Ezra. Um, also during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of Haggai the prophet, one of the what we call the one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and the book of Zechariah, right right before Malachi, another book in the Old Testament. So it was written, of course, to Israel after the divided kingdom, after the captivity, like Ezra. Uh, both of them very similar in that it was written to them after that, and they were going back to Judah. Um, Israel, again, we mentioned this under Ezra too, but this is something to be reminded of. It had to go back to Judah because there were prophecies that were to be fulfilled. The Messiah that God was going to send had to be born there. Uh, and so they went back to Judah, to Jerusalem. Bethlehem also is there in Judah, in the hills of Judea there in Judah. And it was, it was uh, prophesied in Isaiah 7 that um, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. She called his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Micah chapter 5 tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem, and that's in Judah. So um, those prophecies, for them to be fulfilled, they had to come back to the land. So God raised up Nehemiah and Ezra uh, and others that worked with them for that purpose, to get back to the land where they were supposed to be. So let's look at this a little bit. When you go through chapter 3, and we won't take time to read through the chapter um, verse by verse tonight, but when you read through the chapter, there are the, the walls that are there have gates on them. Um, gates and walls are very important in the Christian life, not so much physically, but they're very important spiritually in our life. Uh, we'll look at a verse about that at the end and talk about that a little bit more. But here, these are actual physical walls in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, around the city. And within those walls, there were 12, or 10 different gates that are found at different spots in the city. And so, um, I said 10 of them. Yeah, 10 of them. So anyway, the first one is what's called the sheep gate. That's a picture of the cross. The sheep that, that the shepherds kept could go in and out of there because they would bring them in for the temple for sacrifices and so forth. But it's a picture of the cross. The Bible tells us uh, that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so um, it's a picture of uh, our Savior's sacrifice. Then there's the fish gate, which is a picture of evangelism and soul winning. Uh, Jesus told his disciples when his ministry began, you see, right before he actually called them one by one, he said, come after me and I will make you to become what of men? Fishers of men. So the fish gate is a picture or type, a picture of evangelism, of winning people to Christ. 
The third gate, go with me, hold your place and go with me over to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter number 6, Old Testament prophet. It's before you get to Ezekiel. Um, Jeremiah chapter 6. Then there is what's called the old gate. And the old gate um, is a gate that represents the things that are tried and true in the Christian life. Jeremiah 6 and verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. So the part where this is, they, they, they said, we will not walk therein. We'll hold off on that. But he tells them to, you know, ask for the old paths, for the good way, where you'll find rest for your souls and stand uh, in those ways. And so the old gate is a picture of that in our life. The things that are tried and true. Um, as, as I talked about Sunday when we talked about prophecy, that one of the reasons, purposes of prophecy uh, to study pro- importance of studying prophecy is to know that God's word is true. He fulfills his prophecies and the ones that haven't been fulfilled will be fulfilled. Then there is the valley gate that's mentioned back in Nehemiah chapter 3. And that is a picture to us of humility and of suffering. Um, the David, the psalmist David later on would write, or, or many years before, excuse me, would write, we'll find out later on in Psalms we study it, uh, many years before wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in group. He leads me through the still waters. Uh, he restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So uh, the valley gate represents humility and suffering in our life. We will go through it in our life of some, some time and some way, whether it's um, uh, the suffering of, of, of uh, sickness, the suffering of heartache, the suffering of losing a loved one, whatever it may be, we're going to go through humility and suffering. Life is that way. And so the valley gate reminds us of that. All of these gates are important. Then there's what's called the dung gate. That is a picture of our old sin nature. And uh, it's a picture of that which is of no value whatsoever before God. And so uh, that was a place where they took all the debris, took all the refuse, the refuse, and took it outside of the of the city. Then there's the fountain gate. The fountain, of course, would be water coming from the fountain gate, and that would be a uh, picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter seven, He said, "He that believes on me from his from within his belly shall flow rivers." of living water. Within our spirit and soul would be rivers of living water. And of course he was talking about, it says there in John 7, he was talking about the Holy Spirit uh, and his ministry in the life of the believer. Then there's the water gate. And the fountain gate's a little different even though the fountain has water in it. And the Bible tells, talks about in Ephesians 5 verse 26, uh, washing of water by the word. And so the fountain gate, or excuse me, the water gate is a picture of, um, of the Bible, word of God in our life. Um, Richard Nixon has nothing to do with this gate. So Watergate, the, the Bible and its importance in our life and how, um, how the, the uh, water of the word washes us, cleans us spiritually, um, not only um, cleans us when we're saved, but it cleans us practically every day in our walk with the Lord. Then there's the horse gate. Horses were used in battle. And so the horse gate is, uh, is a picture of the uh, spiritual warfare and battle that we that we go, uh, go into and face in our lives as believers. There are times where we go through battles um, and, and, 
spiritual battles in our life of temptation and battles of um, going through problems and the uh, where the tempter um, tries to tempt us to doubt, where he tries to discourage us. And so we face those battles in our life. The horse gate is a picture of that. Then the ninth one is the east gate. And so the east gate is a picture of our Lord's return. Uh, and in the book of Matthew, he talks about um, the, how the, when the Son of Man comes, he'll come out of the east. And so it is a reminder to us, a picture of the Lord rapturing his church and of his return later on to set up his kingdom on earth. Uh, the east gate facing east, of course. And then there's a gate called the Mifkad gate. It's, it's written that way in English, and it simply means a gate of judgment. And so uh, that gate is also very important to remember because for the Christian, we face judgment um, or, or, or our Savior took our judgment, our first judgment at the cross when he died for us on the cross. He took the judgment of our sin and we trust in him uh, and his finished work for eternal life. But also there's the judgment for the Christian. We will stand before God one day as a believer in Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ and a give, give an account to him of the things we've done after we were saved the things we've done for him, uh, or maybe things we didn't do, opportunities that we didn't take. And so there will be the judgment seat of Christ. And of course, for the lost person, there's what the Bible calls the white throne judgment. But anyway, that tenth gate is a picture uh, to us of judgment. So let's look at some lessons learned. As we said, God's work will face opposition, both on the outside and on the inside. Somebody explained it very well like this many years ago. Opposition from the outside is like woodpeckers. Have you ever had a, when I lived over on uh, 5th Street, I had a woodpecker actually. You ever had a woodpecker pecking on your house anywhere? Yeah, you can hear it. It's like, where's that come from? Oh, it's pecking on the house. They can do damage from the outside. They do damage to a tree, but they have to make a nest, right? But woodpeckers um, are like opposition that come from the outside. Now, it talked about in their enemies, but he also had some displeased people within God's people, and they're more like termites. And the thing about termites, you can't see the damage until it's done. That's the thing about termites. And so both woodpeckers and termites can cause damage. And so anytime you do something for the Lord, there's going to be opposition. It's just the way it is. Nehemiah is a great example of that. Nehemiah, is a, as we'll see in a moment, is a great example uh, for anyone that's in any kind of leadership. Another lesson, some more lessons learned. Prayer, faith, and perseverance are needed for any project that's worthwhile. Most of them are not going to happen overnight. Um, if it's a project that involves putting together a team or person, personnel, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. And with that prayer, with that faith, trusting God. And so any project that's worthwhile takes those lessons. That was Nehemiah. He started it out with prayer. Remember chapter 1? He prayed before uh, the Lord and talked to him. And this burden that he had on his heart for three months before he even talked to the king about it. Three whole months. And so prayer, faith, and perseverance, he's a great example of those things. Uh, we looked at, uh, we talked already about prayer burden, so we won't go back to that. But in chapter 1, he had the burden on his heart to, um, to go back and, and to Jerusalem and to, um, to rebuild the city after he heard what his brethren said. Let's go back and kind of zoom in in chapter 2, verse 12, if you'll go there with me. Chapter 2 and verse 12. And we'll see how he left his comfort zone. Remember it said at the end of chapter 1, he was the king's cupbearer. He knew what was coming. He had to put feet to his prayers. God had put the burden on his heart to do this. He prayed about it, and now it's time to act. Pick up at verse 12 of chapter 2. And I rose in the night, 
Oh, back up. I'm sorry. Back up verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I should have, should have put 11 instead of 12. So after he talked to the king, he goes back to Jerusalem. And he's there for three days looking all over everywhere and seeing what's going on. I rose in the night, verse 12, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. You know, sometimes it's not good to tell your goals and dreams and vision too early. Sometimes you got to hold on to it. And he learned that secret to not say anything until the time was right. Continue on. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon, probably a horse, verse 13. And I went out by the night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem. Now those are a couple of the, you know, the gates that we talked about, which were broken down, and the gates there were consumed with fire. It was in shambles, in a mess, verse 14. Then went I on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. I mean, stuff was just everywhere, just debris, um, probably great big um, uh, you know, posts, things like that, and just everywhere. You couldn't pass under it, verse 15. Then I went up by the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. We talked about the valley gate also, verse 16. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, Neither had I yet, uh, as yet told to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. He, was, he, he heard about the, what was going on. He prayed about it. Now he saw it firsthand. He saw what needed to be done. So while he's riding there, um, just from what you can read about Nehemiah, he was probably already laying out in his mind the plan of what needed to be done. He probably had a lot of the details already in his mind. I'm going to do this for the Lord, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But he wasn't going to tell it until it was time to do that. But he left his comfort zone. He was in a palace, like Joseph was at one time, like Moses was at one time. He was in a palace where it was plush. He had it made, but he knew that he had to go do what the Lord wanted him to do, and he left his comfort zone. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to do, but like we see with everyone in Scripture that left their comfort zone, it was the most rewarding thing that happened in their life and in their ministry, to leave their comfort zone. You know, there may be something in in your life, the Lord, we've been talking about, you know, in the last couple of months about spiritual gifts. Maybe the Lord will lay something on your heart to leave your comfort zone. To do something for him doesn't mean you have to leave these four walls or your house or anything. But there may be something that he lays on your heart and you have to leave your comfort zone. Motivating others to serve the Lord with you. He had that ability. Go with me to chapter 4 and verse number 6. Chapter 4 and verse 6. So built we the wall, and the wall was joined together in the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah was a great motivator of people. And when we talked about it several, uh, a couple of months back, the spiritual gift of what's called ruling in Romans 12, it's also we call it organizing or leadership. He definitely had characteristics of that. He had that in, in his life. He was able to motivate people to, um, to serve. And if you go back, if you go through and you get a chance to read Nehemiah, you'll see where at each of the gates and each of the walls, he had assigned out different ones for each one. And as you read on through this chapter, when you get to verse 17 and 18, you'll see where they're working and they have what they needed to work with, but they also had a weapon while by their side. Why did they do that? Because opposition. When opposition came, they wanted to be ready for it. We're rebuilding God's city, and if we face opposition, we're going to have to, fa- we're going to, have to face it. We're just going to have to do it. And so God uh, helped him to be able to get everybody organized for that. He stood strong against opposition. Chapter 4 
Verse 1, Then came to pass when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. So this is one of the enemies from without. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which were burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. So there's another enemy. And he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall break down their stone wall. So uh, there was opposition there standing against them. Then I mentioned verse 13 to 18, where, they, um, where their enemies, they were ready for them. They had a weapon as well as what they needed to work with. And then you go to verse chapter, look at chapter 6. They don't stop. The enemies didn't stop. Verse 1 to 3. Now it came to pass when Sanballat, we heard that name earlier, and Tobiah, we heard that name, Geshev the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I built the wall, that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem said, uh, come to me, sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together. Um, in some of one of the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief. So he said, oh no, I'm not going to Ono. Verse 3, and I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? So they didn't even come to him personally. They sent people. So he says, all right, that's fine with me. I'll send people back to you. I'm not going to come and, and uh, take my time out of working just to, uh, to talk to you because I know you're enemies of what we're doing. So he stood strong against opposition. Then we see one more thing. We talked about this. Go back to uh, Proverbs or over to Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs 25, verse 28. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So Jerusalem physically is a picture of spiritually what can happen in our lives. If we, if we, uh, if we, don't, have, uh, we don't have control over our, over our own spirit. And so uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, um, the Holy Spirit wants to control us. He wants to control uh, our thoughts and our, and our actions. And it says he that does not have that is like a city broken down without walls. And so like Nehemiah, we need to build walls in our life. But also, we're not, they're not walls to be just completely secluded from everybody. There has to be gates too. So you have to build walls because there are people out there that um, they, they have no love for God or for His Word or for Christians and you have to have the walls up. But at the same time, you have gates to enter in and out where, uh, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're to be a good testimony. We're to, to, um, to let others know that, you know, yeah, I stand for what is right, but I love God. And because I love God, I love people. And to have the compassion and burden for people that we need. So the importance of walls in our life. Jesus, as Nehemiah uh, did, he left the palace. The Bible tells us in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus came to do the Father's will. He came to do what the Lord uh, sent him to do, and left the glory of heaven. Uh, the sheep gate, as I mentioned, chapter 3 and verse 1 about the sheep gate, uh, when Jesus came... Um, when John the Baptist was preaching and he saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so the sheep gate reminds us of him. Also, in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 17 to 19, it talks where it talks about where I got that thing in my eye. It talks about where he fed them. He took care of them and fed their um, 
and met their needs uh, of, of food, 517 to 19. Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers besides those that came unto us from among the heathen about us. So there were those from outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, uh, that were Gentiles, and he um, he also helped and took care of them. Verse 18, and it tells about everything that they did. They took all these um, sheep and so forth, and they, and they uh, fed them. Uh, and then it says in verse 19, Think upon me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. So Jesus, the Bible tells us in chapter 6 of John, verse 11, He's the bread of life. And He took the bread that was given to the fishes and broke them and fed the multitudes. A few verses for home address to remember. There are so many good places in Nehemiah found all throughout the book of Nehemiah. So many great, great passages. And in chapter 2 and verse 4 is what's called a Nehemiah prayer. Look with me here. Remember we were in chapter 2, we were talking about he was before the king and he was sad. And the king was like, okay, what's up, Nehemiah? Why are you sad before me? You're not to be this way. Your countenance has fallen. Uh, why are you sad? Are you sick? You have your, uh, um, are you, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. Ver, look at verse number um, four. Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse five, and I said, just that quick, Lord, help me. Lord, show me what to say. Just that quick. You ever had a time where you had to pray a Nehemiah prayer like that, where something happens so quick out of the blue, maybe it's an accident, maybe something happens, or a decision you need to make, just like that. You pray very, very quick. And so that's what's called a Nehemiah prayer, and that's what he did. He offered up real quick a prayer before God, just a very silent prayer between him and God, just as the king was saying that. Lord, uh, it doesn't record what he said. Uh, it just says here that I prayed to the God of heaven. Then he says in verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleased the king, and then he gave him his request. So um, Nehemiah prayer, that's a great, great thing to remember um, because you may need that from time to time. Chapter 2, verse 18. I told them the hand of my God, which is good upon me, as also the king's word that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Now, there again, you see how Nehemiah was a leader. It doesn't say Nehemiah said, let us rise up and build. They all said it. Why? Because he had, he had uh, told what was going on. He had, you know, the burden that was on his heart. And so they said, let's rise up and build. They said, this needs to be done. Chapter 8, verse 7 and 8 and verse 10. Man, there's so much good stuff in here in chapter 8. In chapter 8, you see where Ezra comes on the scene, and he was a scribe. And it says in verse 4 that he stood upon a pulpit of wood. Now, it doesn't mean he stood like on, on a pulpit. I mean, there was a pulpit there, and he stood, stood there where the pul they made a, a pulpit, obviously similar to what we have. And then he and some of the teaching priests, and they give their names, they begin to they take the word, and they, and they teach it and preach it to the people there. And look what it says in verse 7 and verse 8. And he named some of them there. Look down at the end of the verse. They caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Verse 8. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. That is, they were very clear with it. They gave the sense. They explained it. They caused them to understand the, read, understand the reading. They helped them to apply it to their life. So uh, that is what any, you know, any teacher of Sunday school, any pastor should do. And so uh, they help them understand God's word. And then it says, as you read on through there in the next couple of verses, the people wept. They were, you know, they, they were just so happy to hear God's word. Remember, they've been in captivity for a long time. Their parents have been in captivity. And so to be together worshiping, they just literally wept because of that. 
Do you look forward to coming together and worshiping the Lord on Wednesday, Sunday? Do you look forward to being with God's people? Man, they wept about it, and we should never, ever take it for granted. And then he says something in chapter 8, verse 10. I love this verse too. He said unto them, go, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet. In other words, have a good time. But look what he tells them to do. Send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Man, Nehemiah had a heart to minister to other people. There are others that couldn't be here, he says. So take stuff to them. Take some food to them. Encourage them with this. Tell them what happened. Tell them what we were doing today and take something to them that, that didn't have anything. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be you sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where our course comes from. We sing sometimes about the joy of the Lord. So... Many other verses as well, but only fit four up there for tonight. But great, great passages in the book of Nehemiah. Love this book, and I hope if you've not read it that you will. And we'll stop there tonight. Lord willing, next week we'll come to the book of Esther. Uh, it's a book that doesn't even mention the name of God one time. That's interesting, isn't it? But we'll, we'll see some very, very important things that happen in the life of Queen Esther. What a great, great um, book, of, of, uh, book in Scripture. All right, any questions or anything before we close? Body. All right, let's stand and close in prayer and we'll dismiss and hope everybody has a safe trip home. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this man, Nehemiah, for the burden that was on his heart to do something that not only affected him, certainly did, but affected the lives of many others who came back to the land, who came back to the city to put their hands to the task and then once that was finished, to enjoy the fruit of their labor together and to fellowship together. And then they spent time in your word and they worshiped you right there in the middle of town, right there close to the temple. They worshiped you and um, they were um, they, they praised you for what you had done and how you had brought them back after being so very long. Their parents and being so very long from the land and now they're back. And uh, Lord, there's so many lessons to learn from Nehemiah individually and personally and then so many things to learn from what he did uh, in working together with, uh, with those who put their hands to the task to work in, at the goal and to see it achieved, Lord. Thank you for your word and uh, what we learned from it. Pray that you'll keep us safe as we leave from here tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all be safe and have a safe trip home. Lord, we'll see you Sunday.